morning at this time, I'd like to invite all the kids out this side door over here with Miss Joy for Jump Start. And uh, you guys will be back by the end of the service. Uh, thank you, Doug. If you would, grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Leviticus, chapter 10. Now, if you're just joining us, we're going through a series right now entitled Whole, where we're going through the whole Old Testament, one book at a time, uh, one Sunday per book. So we are three weeks into it, and we are into the third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. If you're looking with your Bibles, it's Leviticus chapter 10. We're going to be reading just the first few verses through verse 11. Uh, With that in mind, friends, hear the word of God to us. This is Leviticus chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censure and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses." And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses." Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our holy God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep this strange story open in front of you? Uh, Father, we approach uh, your throne of grace, uh, Lord, and yet we also know that you are a holy God who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, Father, we pray that more and more that we would see you in your truth as your word describes you, and we, would we see more and more the preciousness of the gospel of grace. And Father, would your holiness drive us to be holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we get it, we're getting into Leviticus, which is one of the harder books of the Bible to read. Uh, Leviticus uh, is where your Bible reading plan goes to die. Has anyone ever tried to read through the Bible? You make it through the wilderness of Exodus, and then you go and you die somewhere in the middle of the book of Leviticus, right? It's where your Bible reading plan usually ends ends up flailing sometime in February, right, every year. Uh, So as we get to Leviticus, you know, it is one of the harder books to understand, and yet I would also suggest to you that Leviticus may be the book in the Old Testament that has the most to say and to explain about the New Testament of any book. Uh, The sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus shed for us as a sacrifice for our sins makes absolutely no sense unless you understand something 
about the blood sacrifices that God demanded in the Old Testament. Uh, When we call Jesus our high priest, those words are inexplicable unless we have some idea of what it means to have a priest to begin with. Uh, This idea that we can somehow engage the New Testament with no regard or understanding of the Old Testament is just simply flawed, friends. Uh, To see the Old Testament and the New Testament is actually to see more and more of the true God who has stayed the same through the Old and through the New Testament. So uh, I I guess the way that I think we need to approach Leviticus is to ask ourselves uh, a simple question, Uh, although you probably don't think about it this way, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, do, do, you think, is, do you think worship is dangerous? <laughs> is worship a dangerous act? Well, I mean, think about it. Can you imagine a world where going to corporate worship is actually dangerous? You know, it makes me think of uh, my, my friend and fellow seminarian years ago named Paul Ragwa. Paul was from Ethiopia, and he told us one day in class about how in Ethiopia, back where he pastors, they used to have armed guards, you know, out front, you know, in case someone tried to kill the Christians, right? And so for him, worship was a dangerous act. Uh, but as I've reflected on this question, is worship dangerous? Uh, you know, and what we see in this story of Leviticus is worship is dangerous in a sense, but not in the sense of what's outside or what's out there. What's actually dangerous is what's inside. Let me maybe put it a different way. Um, I think it's easy for us to worry about the outside world, what the future holds. And I know a lot of Christians are very nervous and we're very fearful of the world. But what does Jesus tell us to be afraid of if we're going to be afraid of anything? Jesus, this is Jesus speaking in the New Testament, remember. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says these words, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, if you're going to fear anybody, right? Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, What commands more of our rapt attention? Fearing the outside world and fearing the future or fearing a holy God? (laughs) What does Jesus say? Don't fear people who can kill your body. If you're going to fear anything, fear him who can cast body and soul in hell. Right? And I think that is the right tone to take when we hear this strange story of Nadab and Abihu And we really enter in one of the harder books of the Bible to understand, the book of Leviticus. So look with me back at Leviticus. You know, what's going on in the book of Leviticus? Well, remember, if you have more questions about how this book works or how it points to Christ, remember, you can always uh, join in Wednesday nights at 6.30 online. I'm going to do a deeper dive into the book of Leviticus. Uh, But let me just give you a a sort of a, a quick overview of what's going on in Leviticus. Well, the very name Leviticus sort of gives it away because it's about the Levites, the priests, the priestly group of people in the Old Testament, right? And so we get all kind of rules about what the rules were to be for God's people as they were in the land uh, and in the wilderness and as they are approaching the Holy Land, right? So uh, the, the hard thing, though, is when we read this book, we often think it's really boring, right? Oh, rules, all this weird stuff about the tabernacle, all these sacrifices. Uh, but nothing could be really further from the truth, right, as this story says. Uh, because if you're, if you're following along with us in our series, you'll know in the book of Exodus, like the second book of the Bible that's leading up to this book, 
Uh, the way the book of Exodus ends, right, is after the golden calf and all of that false worship, uh, God gives the people plans to make a tabernacle, and they build the tabernacle, and they have this, it, the tabernacle is a tent where God's holy presence dwells, right? That pillar of fire would come down on the tabernacle, right? And it was the very center of God's people, right? The heart where God dwelled in the midst of his people. But at the end of Exodus, do you know what happens at the very few last verses? God's holy fire, his holy presence comes down, and no one can even enter it. And so Moses is standing outside of this tent with God's holy presence visible in front of him. And that's how the book ends. And you know how Leviticus begins? In Hebrew, it begins, which is Hebrew for, and he called. And you know what that means? If you read Leviticus 1.1, what it means is when God's holy, glorious, sort of terrifying, holy presence is in the temple, a voice comes out of the temple, and he called Moses into the temple. But this is the boring book. You think Moses was thinking, oh, this is going to be boring. He approaches the tabernacle and he goes, and God, this holy, righteous God, who will by no means clear the guilty, who will punish sin, then graciously and lovingly and full of mercy begins to teach Moses how an unholy people can actually live in the presence of a holy God. And how even though they continue to sin time and time again, day after day, God is going to teach Moses what the sacrificial system is going to look like so that people would take sin seriously and yet they would always know they can be reconciled to this God who dwells at the very center of his people. <laughs> we see an unholy people learning what it means to live with a holy, loving God. Which, you know, I know that's really strange and, you know, we don't really like to think about God in this way as sort of holy and, and just, right, and sort of terrifying. You know, we love to think of God as loving and merciful. And, you know, really this whole Old Testament stuff, this whole Old Testament series, right, is really stretching a lot of us because we don't really like the Old Testament, if we're being honest, and we don't really know what to do. And, you know, some of us think God is grumpy in the Old Testament and super happy in the New Testament, right? He's bad cop in the Old Testament, good cop in the New. Uh, but, friends, what I want to suggest to you is that's just, uh, it's just categorically wrong. <laughs> it's just intellectually wrong. It's also theologically wrong. Uh, and it's a misunderstanding and God is better than you think, but God is also more holy in the New Testament than we often think. So, you know, this is the question of faith, right? Who is God? What is he actually like? You know, it's fascinating to me when I talk to people, even if they don't have a faith background, I very rarely actually talk to people who don't believe in God. Most people believe there's something out there that we can't understand, right? And I don't, I don't just mean like Bigfoot, right? They actually believe there's something out there. There's this divine thing, what the questions are almost always about is what is that God like or what is the character of that divine being? I agree there's something beyond, but what is he like? That seems to be more of the question. So how does the God of the Bible reveal himself? Well, the most famous verses in the Old Testament, uh, the, the verses that the Old Testament and the New Testament will quote more than any other 
is in Exodus 34, and this is God revealing his character. It says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, right? That's how you say it in Hebrew. Isn't that great? You need to drink milk before you try to say that. (laughs) Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is gracious, and he's more gracious than you'll ever understand. But also, God reveals himself this way. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Isn't it fascinating that God's goodness and faithfulness to the righteous extends for thousands of generations, right? I mean, just thousands of generations. And yet, uh, when people are sinful and they turn from him, you know, when we sin, oftentimes, who, who experiences the consequences when we make mistakes, Often our own kids and our grandkids, right? All of our families and all of our dysfunctions, they hurt so much because they extend down to our generations. But God won't let that continue forever. God cuts it off at the third or fourth generation. He doesn't let those generational curses last for thousands of years, right? But we still get this picture of God as exceedingly merciful and yet exceedingly righteous. So who, how am I supposed to understand that? Um, Okay, so I don't know if this will make any sense, but this is, this is how I think about it. Last week, I used an object lesson. Anybody remember what it was? What was the object lesson? No, it was your heart, y'all. Yeah, it was a sponge, right? And it was supposed to represent your heart. Yeah, right? Okay, so, you know, what is this? It's your heart. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do the same object lesson. So, uh, you know, when I think about how people struggle to understand God. The typical answers are are something like this. I grew up and God was all fire and brimstone and all judgmental, and there is nothing to like. There was no uh, softness of heart. There was no mercy. It was all condemnation. But then I get around other Christians, and God is only accepting. He's only fluffy-duffy, and all he ever wants to do is affirm you and all of your good and bad decisions you've ever wanted, right? He's all grace, Right? He doesn't really call what you think is sin, sin. You know, God has a, a modern view of sin and sexuality and agrees with all of your political stances. Right? Or God is like really judgmental and really mean, and people need to shape up. You know, those are those two sort of sides, and we don't really know what to do with it sometimes. So we sort of, maybe we hang out over here a little bit, then we go over here a little bit. But we don't really seem to understand God's character in a consistent way that it seems like the Bible authors do. You know, how is it that Jesus can talk about hell and at the same time say he's meek and lowly and he will not put out a smoldering wick? Which is it? Is God just or is he merciful? I, I don't know what to think, right? I mean, how many of us have these struggling questions in our minds, you know, as we, as we think through our religious background? Well, I think it works like this. I think if you think about God's justice, and his wrath against sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. And that's the only thing you think about. And that's the only picture in your mind. How is your heart ever really going to be on fire for the Lord? I mean, who can stand before him? And if all you ever think about is God just forgives everything, you know, as um, I think it was Heinrich Heine said, you know, um, God's going to forgive whatever I do. That's his job. Right? 
this kind of flippant understanding of grace, you know, that actually doesn't make any sense because if God is all forgiving, why did Jesus have to die on a cross if God could just, you know, forgive it? But which is it? Well, some of you may know where I'm going with this, but I went to REI yesterday and I bought this. And how does this work? Well, I think you have to take God's grace and his justice. And it's when they join together, right? I didn't really practice. I think I'm doing it right. Ah! Magic trick, right? There we go. I'm taking it easy because I don't want to catch the church on fire. It's harder than it looks. I'll let you try after the church if you want to. But if you think about what, the way that a flint and stone works, right? You know, flint and stone, you strike two things and a spark comes. What I would suggest to you is, is that's what it looks like to begin to understand the holiness of God and who he is in truth. You can't just take his mercy and you can't just take his justice. That will never light the altar of your heart on fire for the true God. What you have to have is both. And it's when you see him in both his truth and his mercy that you actually begin to light the fire of your heart. <laughs> you know, the Bible talks about how our lives are meant to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. I think it's seeing both of these things and letting the spark of it light us is really how we start to understand who the God of the New Testament is and who the God of the Old Testament is and how he's the same God. So think about it this way. You know, when we're looking at Leviticus 10, you know, look with me down at Leviticus 10. You know, what's going on in this story is God's people have just received all of the rules of the sacrificial system for the first time. You know, the first nine chapters of Leviticus, God's been explaining all of the different kind of sacrifices for sin and for offering thanksgiving. And now in chapters 9 and 10, we start to see the first holy convocation, the first use of all of these sacrifices. And all of God's people are gathered around to see the first time that anyone's ever done any of these sacrifices, right? Remember, God has just called Moses out of the tent, and now Moses and Aaron are going to demonstrate these sacrifices, so when you look in Leviticus chapter 9, those sort of last verses, if you will, of Leviticus, uh, go there in verse uh, 9, 23, and 24, it says, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, right? That's that tabernacle where God's presence, his holy presence is. And when they came out, they blessed the people, right? Because God is gracious and he wants to bless his people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And that, and that Hebrew word right there for shouted doesn't mean like, ah, this is terrifying. It was more like, this is incredible and amazing. They were shouting for joy because they see the glory of God in the tabernacle. And they realize that all of these sacrifices are ways that they can approach the living God with assurance of faith. But then, as exciting as that is, tragedy strikes. Something terrible happens. And that's what chapter 10 is all about. Aaron, the high priest, has four sons, and he takes his oldest two, Nadab and Abihu, and they are all part of this worship service. But look at 
verse 10-1. What happens? Tragedy strikes. Um, and I'm intentionally trying to pick hard passages in the Old Testament because I don't want to avoid the hard passages because these are all the ones we're wondering about, right? <laughs> so what happens in this hard passage? Nadab and Abihu, these sons of Aaron, each took his censure, right, this sort of like shovel with that burns like incense, if you could picture that, and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it and authorized what? Or they gave what? Unauthorized, or some translations call this strange fire before the Lord, which he had what? Which the Lord had not commanded. And what does the Lord do? Well, that same fire that's the source of joy and excitement with all the people, it consumes Nadab and Abihu, and they drop dead. And Moses looks at Aaron and he says, don't you know we are serving a holy God and we are the spiritual leaders and we are held to a higher standard? And Aaron, the father, is just dumbstruck. <laughs> you know, he's just totally silent, right? Because he is in a holy place. He can't tear his garments. He's wearing his priestly garments. If he were to tear his garments and mess up his hair and rip off his turban and all the regalia that he had around the priest, it would further offend God's holiness, right? And so what do they do? They bring out uh, some cousins and they come take the bodies away. And then something very interesting happens in verse 8. This is a very rare occurrence where the Lord doesn't talk to Moses. He talks to Moses' brother, Aaron. The Lord says to Aaron directly, drink no wine or strong drink you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting lest they die. So what in the world is going on in this strange story? Well, I think the, the way to understand this is to ask, what did Nadab and Abihu do that was so wrong? Uh, so uh, there's been a lot of, uh, uh, you know, sort of explanations you could take. You know, the first one, uh, based on the text, is maybe what Nadab and Abihu did that was wrong is they may have been drunk, right? That would sort of explain verse 8 and 9, right? Why does the Lord grab Aaron afterward and say, hey, don't drink any wine when you go to the tabernacle, right? So maybe they were drinking alcohol. Uh, we're not, that's, uh, that's a guess, right, based on the text. Another way to say is, well, you know, maybe what they were doing is as they're watching all of this ceremonial stuff, uh, they, are, they are sort of feeling left out. They don't have enough cool stuff to do. So they sort of get creative or they maybe want some attention on themselves and they start doing stuff that God never said because they want some attention. You know, it, 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 is it possible that religious leaders do things that God doesn't command so they want, because they want attention? and they want the glory of man, and they want to be thought of as something great? Absolutely, sure, that, maybe that's it. You know, is it possible that they're abusing alcohol and that's blurring their decisions? Maybe, yeah, that could be also the case. Uh, regardless of why they do it, the passage doesn't really tell us why. But what it does say is what the problem is, is they offer some kind of incense but the point is not that they're offering incense. The point is God had not told them to do it. And their job was to uphold the Lord as holy before all the people. And they were breaking his commandments. So, you know, how are we supposed to understand this story? <laughs> you know, um, what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, there's several things I think we can take away. Number one is I think when we approach worship, 
you know, when we think about worshiping the holy God, do we even have a category in our mind for a holy God? Do we have a category in our mind that God is, is worth obeying to this extent? But I also wonder about this is just, you know, when, we, when it comes to worshiping God, you know, whether it's corporately as a congregation or individually, how many of us will take sort of a lot of truths in the Bible, but then sort of try to mix in worldly truths or, or worldly philosophies or new age thought or, or self-help thought, try to dabble a little bit in the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, but then we sort of want to synthesize other ideas or faiths or convictions and we want to sort of offer our own unauthorized fire that God has not commanded. And then we may be shocked when he doesn't accept it. You know, I guess when I read this, what, what strikes me the most is, and I don't know if this makes sense to you, but when it comes to the Lord, uh, the, the, the thought in my mind is always this. No prior commitments. There can be no prior commitments in my heart except to the Lord. If I put my family first, my family is great. I love my family. The Lord wants me to love my family. But my first commitment is to the Lord. And if I put anything between me and him, it will become an idol and a stumbling block to me. And instead of living for the Lord, I'll live for my kids. And when they're 18, they'll abhor me. <laughs> Because all of my existence will be based on them, and I will need them for my self-worth. If I put my career before the Lord, I will die of an early heart attack when I retire, because I won't have any other reason to live except my job. It will be a prior commitment to the Lord. Nadab and Abihu can have no other commitments except to the commands of the Lord. Where are you in that? Do you have prior commitments, deeper commitments than to the God of the Bible? Do you regard him as holy and merciful? And if you are not going to accept him as he reveals himself, if you're not going to accept him as his word reveals, which is exceedingly just and exceedingly merciful, <laughs> um, you, the Bible will say that's like committing adultery. It's like it's adultery with your heart against the Lord. Because you're not accepting the Lord for who he is, you're taking things about the Lord and then projecting other ideas onto him. I mean, think about it this way. Um, you know, when you think about it, maybe this is a, a hyperbolic image, but I don't really think so. I mean, imagine, you know, you're married to this beautiful wife and she's a redhead, okay? And then you're like, I love my wife, I love my redheaded wife. And then, you know, one night, you know, you go to the Jacksonville Inn with another woman who kind of looks like your wife who also has red hair. And I, I come up to you at the table, and I'm like, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, well, I've got this new woman. She just reminds me so much of my wife. You know, she's a little younger, a little cuter, but she, but she reminds me so much of my wife. And what I like about her is what I actually like about my wife. So I'm really thinking about my wife. I just get a better version of her, the version that I want. What self-respecting wife would ever accept that? What self-respecting holy God would allow us to say, well, I like some things about you, God, but not all of you. 
So let me take some truths of this philosophy, some truths of this philosophy. Let me take some of your ritual sacrifices, some of this strange fire, and then I want you to accept it. No prior commitments, right? Why? Because God is exceedingly more gracious than anything we can even come up with. You know, the, the old preacher's joke, right, is that God made man in his image, and we have been trying to return the favor ever since, right? All right, what else do we learn about Nadab and Abihu? What else are we supposed to learn from this strange story? Well, as I was reading on this, a um, Middle Eastern pastor named Derek Rajmawi, uh, who is a pastor down in California now, uh, he was talking about Nadab and Abihu, and he wrote an article on Christianity Today. And uh, you know what the first sentence is in this article? He says, it's been a bad year for pastoral scandals in the church. You know what the worst part? He was talking about 2018. <laughs> he wasn't even talking about this year, and it's already been a bad year for spiritual leaders. And what do we most need from spiritual leaders, and what does our congregation most need from elders? No prior commitments. We live, breathe, obey, love the Word of God and nothing else. No prior commitments. Those who are leaders are judged more harshly, right? And of course, you know, notice in verse 6 in this story that Moses tells Aaron that he, continue, he needs to continue serving as a priest. You know, notice that there is grace in this story, right? Because God doesn't just say, you know what? I'm trying to explain the sacrificial system, and what do you do? Once again, you're disobedient. I'm just done with you. Is that what God does? No. He says, Aaron, I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to use your sons. I still want to dwell with you, even though, even at the very beginning, you still won't abide by my word. <laughs> what God says, though, is he says to Moses, Look at right there. This is what the Lord is saying, right? Um, or excuse me, what Moses is saying. Um, he says, Aaron, uh, wrath will come upon the whole congregation if you don't do what's right. Right? This idea of, well, what, what are priests in the Old Testament? You know, and, and how do the, what the priests do have anything to do with the congregation? Well, a priest was an intermediary between God and the people. It's this person who served as the mediator between a holy God and an unholy people. So when we would sin in the Old Testament, we would have to go to the priest. We'd have to say, I sinned. And he would say, okay, we're going to make this animal sacrifice to remind you that sin is serious and sin leads to death, right? And so if the high priests go astray, all of the congregation will suffer from that, right? Just like today when spiritual leaders fail, who suffers? God's name is dishonored and the congregations of those failed leaders suffer, Right? So the intermediary is what the priest does. But how are we supposed to really leap? Okay, so if that's the ancient world, how does this have anything to do with what Jesus is doing? <laughs> well, again, we may, wanna, we may be tempted to sort of leave Leviticus in the Old Testament and say, well, that's just the weird stuff, <laughs> right? That's, that's grumpy dad. I like, you know, happy Jesus. But friends, the New Testament is constantly talking about Leviticus. And when you get into books like Hebrews, uh, it draws an exact parallel between these priests and what Jesus Christ has done. You know, in Hebrews 10, it says this, And every priest, this is like back in the Old Testament, every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, all those goats, all those animals, which can never really take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So friends, when we read Leviticus and we hear about these priests, and we, all of these things point to Jesus. These blood sacrifices remind us of Jesus' blood shed for us. And we don't have to sacrifice any more animals because Jesus sacrificed himself once for all time, for all people. The blood has been shed. And this idea that we want a high priest who gets God's word right, I mean, Jesus says in the kingdom of God, you will not need to call anyone teacher, don't call anyone father, for the Lord will teach you and the Lord will be your father. And who is the high priest who pleads on our behalf to a holy God? Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus is the one who brings us, as Hebrews says, into the tabernacle, past the curtain, through the inner sanctuary, and brings us with full assurance into the presence of God. Now, I mean, if, you, if that's true, and if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you want to dwell with God like that. You want to be in his presence. And it's not boring, and it could never be boring, because you are in the presence of a holy and righteous and loving God. I mean, that's like, imagine if you were on a tightrope, you know, between two tall buildings. Anyone see that old movie, Man on Wire, about the Frenchman, you know, back in the 70s, who took a high, a high wire across the World Trade Center? Do you ever see that documentary? I mean, entering into the presence of God in worship is like being on a high-rise tightrope, <laughs> and Christ gives you the bar, and you are getting through it, right? But there's, it's never boring. You know, if it's boring, is, it, are you seeing the righteousness and the mercy? <laughs> if it's boring, are you seeing them, and is it striking a fire in your heart? And if it's not, what are you missing? What are you not seeing? Is it his righteousness? Is it his mercy? It's both. And only when you see both, and only when you see it in Christ, will your life be the altar of the living God. Now, friends, that's an invitation to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are a holy God. You are our great high priest. Lord, you teach us how to worship you. You tell us to pray in your name. You tell us to pray for one another. You tell us to pray for our enemies and to love them. You tell us to worship you in spirit and in truth. You tell us to preach the word. You tell us to open our ears and open our eyes to see and to hear your word. Father, you teach us to come to your table and take communion, to examine ourselves, to discern your body and blood, and to behold your holiness and grace. Now, Father, would we do that this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.